I just did an interview for, I guess, for Valentine's Day, and they asked me about my first kiss, and I walked them through it and kind of went, revisited that memory, um, which was really quite sort of a terrifying thing. And then he asked, you know, when did, when did you get over your your fear of, of girls or whatever, you know? And I thought about it for a second and I realized I haven't, I still haven't. All that stuff, sex and intimacy and maneuvering around a woman physically, you know, in the round is one thing that I have just not figured out. If I'm, if I have, if, the, if there's weight to a woman, I don't mean physically, but if there if there's like a weight to them for me or a magnetism or something, I just I I clam up and become you know somebody that I don't like. I become dry and not and not humorous, uh, nervous and serious and. Uh, you know, pragmatic, like not, you know, not willing to go on whimsy and, and, and follow my, my, my id or whatever, which, you know, normally I try, try to stay connected to my urges and go with that or, you know, in, in my daily life. But I'm such a loner. I don't know if it counts. You know, it's like if I had my druthers in one sense, I, I would just lock myself away with, ice cream and hardies and and french fries and things you know and milkshakes and just just sort of go go at it and you know if there were no consequences to that obviously you know that's why i have the digestive issues that i have um it's all interconnected you know like and that's all my fear of emerging from that you know, locked away food room and having to, you know, really and truly become intimate with, with someone else and let them in, you know, as opposed to letting in the, you know, Big Mac or whatever. That's an interesting thing. And, and I never really thought about that until he asked me that. But yeah, it's so interconnected. But it's all fear. It really is. There's, I guess there's fear and there's love. And you live from fear or you live from love. And when you live from love, it's about first, what, this is all sh elementary shit, but like, you know, then you love yourself. And when you love yourself, you don't lock yourself in that room. You know, you, you emerge and you, you, you meet and greet and you, you build on other people's ideas and feelings and, and all that. Uh, but it's a hard thing. It's a hard, and the physical stuff is what's really hard for me is to like really navigate that and, and know how how when it's appropriate to like you know when do you do you hold someone's hand when do you put your arm around somebody when do you decide that it's time to kiss them or have sex or whatever all that stuff uh is just just a mystery to me um and i always when i do get into those situations it's always awkward and i always 
end up fumbling into into someone's vagina uh, without you know any sort of natural or build up you know or lead up that that seems to go directly t- towards that that realm um, it's always some some kind of awkward and forced interaction I just have not all I want in life is some woman that I feel comfortable with that I can connect to um, on on many different levels and just that I feel like it's like being around myself but with someone else do you know what I mean like like there's not that that pressure uh, or that awkwardness you know I mean a little bit of awkwardness is is to be expected I suppose for a while but uh, you know what I mean anyway I am here with Andy Bothwell hello hello in a stairwell in the best western in Vancouver. Andy and and us are touring together. Uh, Andy is is a is a band called Astronautilus. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's accurate. Or maybe we say Andy Bothwell, aka Astronautilus. That's also accurate. AKA uh, Young Fancy. Yeah. <laughs> MC Pretty. <laughs> so you've been doing this a while. Mm-hmm. About the same time that I have, I think. When 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 did you get started doing all this shit? You got started out like on the road and kind of going like branching out from just like a regional or local kind of thing. Maybe a couple years before me, I started rapping like when I was like twelve. Yeah. I'm thirty one now, um, but it wasn't like a serious thing until like two thousand and one, two thousand and two, and didn't like go on tour until two thousand and three. And you, well, what what made you want to do do this, this stuff? Well, I've been, like, because I've battled for so long, and, like, um, I was just, like, a battle rapper forever. Got pretty good at that, and, like, got invited to Scribble Jam. I did Scribble Jam and got, like, totally just stage fright at Scribble Jam. Really? Yeah. What year, what year was that? 2002. Um, and I remember watching it all and just being, like, this is really cool, but this is it. Like, this is what battling gets you. This is, I've, I've gotten there. And even though I didn't win it, like, I've gotten there. Like, right. that's it. And I started to just feel like, yeah, this is not really for me. Like, i got to figure out something else. And I had been writing, but never really been making songs. Like, I wasn't a musician. I was going to school to be a director for theater. And, like, a director and a lighting designer for theater. And, like, opera and ballet. Um, yeah, well, we can gloss over that for now, but yeah. I, I'm curious about that. Yeah, yeah, like I would work on theater as an art, and I work on battling as like a craft and a skill. You know, um, it was about being like precise and like really good at something and being the best. Um, and it was after that, like after that battle, that I was started to kind of reevaluate like my like I got Sonic Foundry, this acid, this sequencer program for a computer. Yeah, I started to, like make my first beats and just like really toy around. And then shortly thereafter, I started to just play shows. The live band would be all like improv, like for sometimes two hours or whatever. And um, you wait, 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 you put a band together. I had a friend, a kid named Jeremy, and he was a, like a keyboard player. That just like played around in Denton with every band. And my friend Roger is a DJ named Reraj. We had those two dudes, and Jeremy sort of like just knew all the musicians in Denton. And we would get these shows. He would, I would just show up. And Jeremy would assemble a band, and it would be totally right. different every time. Like okay. sometimes it would be like just me and Jeremy 
and Roger on turntables and it would just be a drummer sometimes we had like 14 person band with a horn section it was basically whoever he could get together and it was just we would just improv for like two hours and he would just sort of direct everything musically we had the same out. thing man yeah. with, with, with Dose yeah you know we had a band called Apogee yeah, uh, 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 Dibs was telling me about it just the other day, actually. Yeah, yeah, Dibs was in it, and, you know, me and Josiah and uh, some other friends, and, and Adam would just freestyle, and we it was very similar. It's interesting. I got, that's where I got my, my chops, like, yeah. totally and completely. And not just, like, freestyling chops, but just, like, the ability to sort of understand, I mean, certainly live performance, like, manipulating a crowd and controlling a crowd or whatever, and, like, but then also sort of getting a rudimentary understanding of song structure, you know, like yeah. how to make things interesting and not just wake it so I was just like rapping for two hours, like right. rapping, breaking down and finding melody and stuff. And that's where I started to learn that I could sing as well. Because mm-hmm. I was told like all growing up that I was tone deaf and I would never know how to sing. Um, Who told you that? Three different bitter ass music teachers. <laughs> so you, you already grew up like wanting to be involved in the arts. It sounds like you had, that was nurtured other than the fact that they told you you were tone deaf, yeah. the, the idea of the arts, you know, you, you didn't grow up in a situation where you were meant to go work in a factory. No, no, no. My my parents have always just been wildly supportive. And um, my father was like a, he worked in the railroad industry. He was a train engineer. Um, and my mom, uh, she was a photographer. Um, they, like, we grew up in, like, rural Maryland in this, like, 100-year-old farmhouse, but the funny thing about Maryland is that you can be, like, in the middle of nowhere, but you're still 30 minutes to D.C. and 30 minutes to Baltimore. Okay. My dad worked, like, in downtown D.C. at at the Union Station there, and my mom, like, worked in Baltimore. And so, like, I grew up kind of in the sticks, but we would go... My mom would take me to museums all the time and take me to art shows, and there's always music in the house, and my older brother was a DJ. Like, that's how I got into rap music. My older brother was a DJ, and started playing me, like, Lord Finesse and shit like that. Okay. Um, yeah, I was definitely not digging myself out of some sort of like you know right. Pittsburgh hell or something. Right. Like that, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, your dad had the kind of job that you could have, if had you followed in his footsteps, ended up certainly. in that that kind of work. Um, that's not artistic necessarily. Uh, not exactly a factory job, but you could have gone that route. What 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 brought you guys to? Because you grew up mostly in Jacksonville, no? Well, I was after in, Maryland, I was in Maryland until I was twelve, and I moved to Jacksonville um, when I was twelve. I was really shy growing up, like really shy. Like I almost got held back in kindergarten because I was like socially underdeveloped. And like I moved to Florida. When I moved to Florida, I sort of just kind of like overhauled everything, like my entire life. You and made? Did you make a conscious decision at age twelve in middle school to, to like, all right, I'm going to be a different person or something? I just sort sort of became more comfortable with the fact that like I wasn't going to have friends because I had my older brother that was like introducing me to like the early, like, Baltimore rave scene. Okay. Like, weird DJ hype mixtapes and stuff. And so I started listening to all this music that none of the other kids were listening to, you know? Right. That's cool. I'm not going to be cool. No one's going to really like me. I'll have, like, maybe three nerdy friends. We'll play Dungeons & Dragons. We'll listen to super weird music, and that's fine. And so, like, I'll just... But I'm going to be myself, you know? You were actually cooler, though, because you, you knew about early rave music and, or you know... Like, yeah, yeah. It was a funny thing, too, and it's one of those But you things, didn't know that. I had no idea. Like, right. no idea. Like, because when kids were listening to New Kids on the Block, like, I was listening to The Clash. Like, right. and that was all. Just my older brother just feeding me shit. Basically, right. it was like my older brother was cool, right. and I just happened to have the luxury of, you know, working under him or whatever. I was going to, like, a regular high school in Florida and just hating it. It was a high school, like, a block from the beach. Like, just super beachy-ass high school, like, surf. It sounds fucking great. It's I don't amazing. Know what you're talking about. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing if you were, like... <laughs> 
fucking in a punk band and yeah. surfed every day or you were a cheerleader and you know smoked weed and I was like straight edge then and like I just wasn't in, I was just out and then I went to, you were straight edge all through high school yeah I wasn't until like senior year it wasn't like straight edge like I was like I didn't even know what straight edge was like I wasn't like political right. straight edge I just didn't drink or do drugs or smoke I just didn't care about it why uh, partly because of my brother taking me to his DJ gigs when I was like 13. He used to DJ at this like club called Simon's, which is a huge rave club in um, Gainesville, Florida. And um, like at the time, like world renowned like rave club, and he would DJ the hip hop like chill out room upstairs. And he would take me there, and I would freestyle at the beginning of the night, at the end of the night, like just for the bouncers and shit. But then just hang out like in the DJ booth with him, you know. Who got you started on freestyling? My, it sounds like that was really early. Yeah, that was I like I started freestyling probably when I was twelve or thirteen. Like my brother gave me a Lord Finesse record, or he gave me a tape. It was, like, it was the Lord Finesse Return of the Funky Man, and then what was left on the B side. He took some of the songs from Guru's Jasmine Taz and put it on there. And like we had talked before, like I didn't really listen to rap music. I listened to Beastie Boys, but that was sort of an extension of like the grunge stuff that I listened to. And then I listened to this dance music, but I was like not into rap. And I heard that, and it was like no other rap that I'd ever heard like that. And then Gangstar, Hard to Earn, were just like mind-blowing. Totally different style. Yeah, just like yeah. whatever was being played on the radio was just like so different, and I just yeah. fell completely in love. And my older brother told me that Lord Finesse was like this, he did this thing called freestyling. And he was really like famous for it and explained it to me. And I just like in my like suburban like naivete assumed that his record was all freestyle. And I was like, oh, this is what freestyling is supposed to sound like. Okay. And so I was like, I had been doing theater and I was involved in theater, so I knew improv, like from theater. And so I was just like, oh, well, this makes perfect sense. Like, this is, and I kind of excelled in improv and in theater. So I was like, this is perfect. And so I got, I just like, I'm going to freestyle. I'm going to freestyle. And so what I was like basing what my standard of freestyling off of was Lord Finesse's like written verses. <laughs> right. Like, and this is what it should sound like. Right. And so for the first two years that I did it, I didn't tell anybody. Like, I would do it like while I walk my dog and like I wash dishes at a pizza parlor. And I would just like stare at the wall and freestyle. I didn't tell anybody because I really thought that like my parents were going to disown me, like which is ridiculous. It was so supportive and kind, but like at the time, being a white guy and being a rapper was just like unheard of. Like right. it was completely unheard of. Um, and so I was just like terrified. And finally, like I confessed to my brother that I had been like rapping, and he was just like, "Can I hear?" And I just like freestyled for him. He's like, "Well, it was really good." And like he started to invite me down to these nights just like hang out and like he would like have like sometimes like you know Rock Raider or Mr. Sinister would come DJ those nights and he would open up and so I was like getting exposed to like and this is in Jacksonville already this is in Gainesville which is like or Gainesville yeah, yeah okay. Gainesville I but like I was Gainesville. living in Jacksonville he was going to the University of Florida right and he would just like bring me down for the weekend and I did right. hang out with his cool friends and I'm like 15, 13 or 14 or whatever and then I transferred to like <clears throat> this arts magnet school for theater to go be in the theater program there um, and coming from like taking drama classes and yeah just being like taking drama classes at like the regular high school yeah. and like being in Greece and like that sort right. of thing but like then there's this arts magnet school that was doing like really you really go and you would focus on like an actual route and you'd sort of like be much more involved and you could focus on technical theater and that sort of thing and like um, and it was just, you know, it was all, you could go and it would just be all theater, everything. And the schools in the South are pretty, public schools in the South are pretty bad anyway. Yeah. And so you, to get any sort of like really decent education from public school, you sort of have to kind of go to the arts, like a magnet school. Like they have like college prep magnet schools right. and stuff. And same, same in, in Cincinnati. I would imagine. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and like the thing about that school too is it's like right in the middle of the downtown Jackson. It's like in a fucking total hood. There's like literally like Rick Ross raps about this strip club that's across the street from my my uh, high school this place called Silver Fox like it was just super gangster out there and like 
so there's like half the kids, these artsman kids that came from all around Jacksonville, and like half the kids were neighborhood kids that got like accepted into the school as well. And so it was this amazing, like, just smashed together of like cultures and like getting exposed. Like growing up in rural Maryland, where there was like one black kid that went to my school, and then we moved to Jacksonville and just being completely immersed in like yep. southern black culture and those being becoming all my friends. And like <clears throat> from there, like kids were freestyling, like we would just meet between classes, like we all knew each other's schedules, like the 12, 15 kids that all rap knew each other's schedules and we knew like we'd all meet at this place, right. rap for two minutes between class, like just trade eight bar ah. verses and then dip the class. Wow. Know? And then at lunch we would just like, I would grab like a cookie and, a, and milk and then just to go freestyle and just like, we would, and then freestyle we waited for the bus, like all this just like nonstop. It's like one of those things where you're just immersed in like creativity, like in a weird way, like, like, like this weird sort of like idiot Southern, you know, Andy Warhol factory, like where it's like everybody's like working on music and working on theater yeah. and just rapping and like painting and doing everything all at the same time. Now, did you excel within that, those circles? Like, yeah. were you one of the best ones? Yeah. I, like it was funny is like, I was, I had a couple of friends that knew like skateboard friends that I, that I knew that I would freestyle with it, like skate spots, whatever. But I was like, I would watch these battles at first and I was like too shy to like get into them. My friend Nathan Antolik, who was just, like, way more ballsy than me, was like, fuck this, and, like, dragged me over and was just, like, pulled me in and was like, this, this guy can rap. and he can this, is, this is how you got involved with the guys in school? In school, okay. yeah, totally, okay. totally. Okay. And, like, and these are white guys or the black guys? Black dudes. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, all of them. I'm yeah. the only white dude. And, like, I would watch them, and I was just super intimidated. And then, like, the first day that he finally got, I'd been there for, like, two months of school just watching, and he finally, like, you know, pushed me into it, and I... Started freestyling, and then the kid who was like the beatboxer was a really good beatboxer. His name was Willis Billups. Willis Billups was a really good beatboxer, and he was just like, Oh man, he was great. He was a character, man. And he, like, uh, he was just like blown away. And he was like, What? And he grabbed me, and he just like ran me. I remember him running me all the way to the gymnasium and like pulling this one kid, and he was like, You guys fucking battle right now and I battled that guy <laughs> and I beat him and he like dragged me and ran me to the other side and grabbed this other dude and was just oh, like wow. you guys battle and I just battled all of the rappers <laughs> but yeah so like that sort of like exploded for me and then I started just battling all around Jacksonville there's a rap scene in Jacksonville but it was really struggling because it was a rap scene born out of the fact that like Jacksonville was gangster by no means that I grew up in that, but was like immersed into it. Yeah, and it was just like legit. now these. So these kids, but were these kids that went to the to the theater magnet arts magnet school gangster kids or no? But they grew up in that environment for sure, and they were getting sort of plucked out of that totally, totally to say, okay, you yeah. can do something else other than that. Yeah, and that was like my first time of being like really exposed to like just the total cultural difference and like class difference. Like I had been like. When I was younger, we didn't have a lot of money, but we were never poor. You know, right. like I was, you know, lower middle class, and then I was middle class, and then I was upper middle class. And that was the first time that I met kids that were like on welfare, that were right. like, you know, raising their little sisters and shit like that. And sure. I just never had seen that before in my life. And from there, got introduced to all these other rap scenes and then got involved in the graffiti scene in Jacksonville. There's a huge train yard in Jacksonville. It's the biggest, like, biggest train hub in that area. Okay. And so there's unnaturally a huge graffiti scene. And from that, like, got, there's tons of graph writers that would travel from all over, like, to hop trains from New Orleans to paint trains there. Did you get into that scene as well? Yeah, but I wasn't very good at it. Yeah. Like, you know, I wasn't a very good graffiti artist. I, you know, like, did that sort of, like, you know, this, the rap music survey where, like, you know, you try DJing, you try beatboxing, right. you try right. graffiti, you try breakdancing. You sort of just pick the one that you, yeah. like. And I would always write, but, like, was never any good. And, like, your, what did you write when you wrote? The one that I finally, like, told, I wrote a ton of dumb shit, yeah. but I finally settled on, I wrote Mech, M-E-C-H, for years. Uh-huh. Um, 
but I have friends that were like legitimately good at it, you know. And so that was like the sort of thing. It was like, wow, you're a really good breakdancer. That's sort of like my relationship with skateboarding too. It was like I love to skateboard, but then I watched my friends just like you know 360 yeah. flipping a six stair, and I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna sit on this and freestyle. You guys keep skating. I, I tried to skate when I was in middle school, and I was overweight. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it just didn't work out very well for me. Uh, I had friends that were really good. And, yeah, I've but, never been particularly. <clears throat> I've never been unathletic, but I've never been exceptionally athletic, you know? I got duck feet, so I can't I have duck feet as well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you're going to this school. In your mind, what did your future look like? I started out wanting to be an actor, and then I started to, like, what was interesting about that school is they actually really pushed you, you know, sort of beyond your limit, especially at, like, the age that you're at. And I, was, I remember doing a scene where I was playing Brutus, um, Julius Caesar, and it's this really sort of famous scene where it's Bruce and Portia. It's, you know, this really beautiful scene, but Portia has like 10 monologues in it, and Brutus has like five lines. That's the sort of beauty of that character, of, of Brutus's character, is because he's a stoic and he internalizes everything, and, and what is the, the, what makes him such a difficult character to play and what is so challenging is that he goes through this huge emotional arc of basically killing his friend, right. and, but that doesn't vocalize anything. Okay. Um, and so it's sort of suffering internally, and for an actor to play that part, it's a really, like, you have to be a really good actor to play that. Bruce is a real tender, he's a real tender character. He's really complex, yeah, because yeah, he starts out full of this piss and vinegar and then realizes that the, the whole world kind of crumbles underneath him. and like He didn't want to do it. He kind of had to do it. He yeah. kind of had to do it. Totally, man. And, and, he, and to play that role... And she played him in a way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's just torn apart because it's like... She sees it killing him, and she's, it's killing their relationship, and it's just, and it's just, just everything is just crumbling, and he won't talk about it, and she wants him to talk about it. She wants him to like the whole thing is like she like stabs herself like with a, a knife to be like, look, I, I, I bleed, I'm alive, like I need to know what's going on, I feel pain, like we're people, and he doesn't talk, and they put me in this scene, and I'm like, you know, 15, 16 years old, I can't possibly right. nail it, but like it's also just sort of like, a, is he going to get close? And I'm like, nowhere close. And that was, like, when I started to realize, like, and I had a talk like, with the heads of my program, and, like, it was awesome. It was this really awesome thing, and it wasn't, like, discouragement. It was, like, we see promise in you, but maybe you should go this way, and that's when they introduced me to the idea directly. Andy, you're tone deaf, and you can't act. <laughs> yeah, but let's go this way. And that was also, like, the realization, too, that, like, I could, because they could ask me the questions. Like, it wasn't like I wasn't doing the work. They could ask me the questions, like, what's your, what's his intent on this line? What's his objective? Like, what's he going for? I knew all of that, like, yeah. stone cold. But like the, that's when I started to see the difference between what made real actors. Like what, it was the ability to know all of this stuff, like know everything that you're supposed to know about the character, and then just forget all of it and, and let it just happen. It. And just act. Yeah, yeah. Not just kind of be, but you know, just like or do the things, but just act. And I could never just really turn my brain off. Like I was too much of a kind of a thinker. I feel the same way. I've, I've always been too self-conscious in some weird totally, way. Totally, like totally, Always aware that I'm acting in something. Like yeah. And wanting to be, like, entertaining, you know, like, wanting to be good, like, yeah. wanting to be charming was always, like, sort of my fault. Like, I couldn't, yeah, I had a hard time, like, really, I really struggled with it, but ended up, like, falling completely in love with directing. And so that was, for me, like, that was it. And, like, I applied to schools and didn't really get any money from any schools except for this school in Dallas called Southern Methodist University, and they were, like, lobbying, like, really hard for me and gave me, like, a huge scholarship. Cool. And it was a, a really good program, like, at the time, it was, like, probably one of the five best like theater programs in the country and I didn't want to go there because I wanted to go to like New York, Chicago, just right. like, you know, romance the whole thing. I was like, Dallas. And it ended up being probably like one of the best decisions like I ever made. And that and you met the the always sunny people and 
Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, Artemis, who plays Artemis in the show, she graduated yeah. the year before I got there. Then there's a couple other people that were there when I was there. And then Mary Elizabeth, who plays the waitress, who's Charlie's yeah. uh, wife, was my girlfriend in like uh, my sophomore year. She was a senior and I was a sophomore. We dated okay. all through that and then dated long distance. And then just realized like this is silly and we just became friends and then she started dating Charlie and then um but yeah that program was just like at the time again sort of the same thing that was like going on in my high school where the cool thing about that program versus like Juilliard and NYU and DePaul and Carnegie Mellon and is that you get to by your second semester of your freshman year you're able to put up your own productions okay you'd be taking like 18 to 22 credit hours of classes every day but then as soon as your classes were done I was doing like work study, doing lighting for all the theater and the opera and the ballet, but then I was like acting in two student projects and directing a project and doing lights for another project and working on solo performance piece and like designing sets and like you were just like constantly like I just, just a veritable renaissance of just like of constantly theater stuff. yeah just immersed in creative projects and it was like really awesome and it's like even when you would like party you would be over at each other's houses like getting drunk and getting stoned but still talking about right art and work and like. That was like just the most amazing thing, and in my free time, I would get off from there in Dallas, and I would book it up to Denton and play these shows with these bands. How'd you meet these Denton people? Through battles in Dallas, actually. Funny enough, like Mary Elizabeth from It's Always Sunny, I had this big crush on her, and um, we weren't dating yet, and I had given up on battling because I had been in some battles in Jacksonville just before I moved to Dallas, and like the one of the last battles that I was in in Jacksonville, a guy like ran out to his car to get his gun. And I had, like, oh, dudes man. try to beat me up before, and I had, like, a dude pull a knife on me, and then like, I had to get, like... He's too good! Kill him! Yeah, just get dudes to get... Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. And I'm, like, so super tiny. Yeah. And I would just, like... I would just go for the throat on people, but right. I'm not a fighter, man. I can't... Right. I'm fucking... I'm, but you can say some mean shit. I can, yeah, I got, a, I got a sharp wit on me, but I can't yeah. fight. And so, like, if shit... Like, they would get super... These dudes would get super pissed. Yeah. And they were fucking gangster-ass dudes. And, like, this dude ran out to his car. And I was, like... I was... I remember so clearly... It was at this club called Jackrabbits in Jacksonville. If you ever played Jacksonville, you probably played there. I would play Jackrabbits. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. Way back, it's, like... It's still kind of a dive, but it's it's sort of, like... It was way crazy dive back then. And, like, it really terrible... That neighborhood was terrible back then. And, um... I remember being like, yeah, I won, I won. And the dude just storms off. And I'm just like, yeah, I won. I'm like so pumped. And everyone's like, Andy, we need to go. And I'm like, what? It's awesome. No, I just won. I just won. I'm like, no, we need to go. And like, they're like dragging me out of the back of the This is your high school friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. my high school friends and all these rap dudes that I just kind of had befriended. And like, I was like, they didn't really even understand. Like, they're like, dude, he's going to get a gun. And I'm like, but what? Like, I completely dumbfounded. But after that, I was just like, that's stupid. Like, that's no fun for me. Like, I yeah. thought we could just all make fun of each other and then high-five at the end and be right, done. Right, right. So I sort of given up on it and been, like, full into theater. And then I was there, and I would, like, get drunk and freestyle at parties just to, like, impress girls or shit. Right. You know, like, then Mary Elizabeth had heard that there was this battle at this reggae club called the Royal Rack. And she was like, you should enter. And I was just like, <laughs> all right. You know, like, for what, her. What, yeah, yeah, like, totally. Okay, whatever you say. Yeah. Whatever you say, baby. And I entered that battle, and it was funny. There's this rapper... Uh, who I knew lived in Dallas, but I didn't know him. He was rapping him Headcrack. And he's, like, now, like, a radio host for, like, a syndicated radio show in Atlanta. But, like, I so heard... As opposed to Ass Crack? Or as opposed to, yeah, yeah, as opposed to Ass Crack. He was always a New York dude, and as a... 
I heard him on Stretch and Bobbito. Yeah. My older brother lived in Manhattan at the time and was like mailing me tapes to Stretch and Bobbito and I heard him freestyle and he was literally like one of my free, favorite freestyle rappers. Okay. And he was living in Dallas and he would just, at the time, he was like the dude that would just go around to all the battles and just like win them, take his 50 bucks yeah. and go. And he got Basically there. doing it as a job. Just doing it as just like, yeah, just this, yeah. he was working like a shit job at the radio station, like the local like clear channel radio station or whatever, like the graveyard shift and doing, you know, hip hop shit and like then was doing this just some side money. He came out to that battle, and I came out to that battle. We met in the finals, and that was... I met him that night, and I also met Brock that night. Headcrack quit battling. Brock is in. He's oh, yeah, Brock's manager. my manager. Um, he's, like, was, became my best friend, and then became just my road dog, and then became my manager. Brock was, like, just the dude that came to all the rap shows. He was, like, a computer-aided draftsman. Like, right. he just came to all the rap shows and was friends with Headcrack because they went to the same elementary school. And he just came out there just to see Crack battle, and that was it. And, like, after that, Crack quit battling in Dallas, and both those dudes just, like, took me under their wing, and they were like, you need to enter this battle, enter this battle, enter this battle. Why did he quit battling? It was just, it was a really cool thing. He just sort of saw, like, this kid's the future. And yeah. it was, like, and it was a really, like, I owed that dude so much for that. Because he was, both of those dudes, Brock and Headcrack, were just, like, the, the first people to, like, really be, like, you need to do this more. You need yeah. to do this for people. And they were just, like, go to this battle win this battle and I won that battle and they would go to this battle win this battle I won that battle and so like within a and like I was winning like all of the big battles in Dallas and Dallas had a really kind of pop and rap scene at the time and there was this battle at this place called the Forest Theater that Erica Badu opened, owned it was an old old theater and like they had this big battle there and the winner of it got to be the host of this like weekly hip hop night and I won the battle and I also won like a fucking echo reversible echo unlimited like uh, bubble jacket. It was like nice. silver and red, and it was so big. I never I would only wear it to costume parties. Uh, and I got this job like hosting this rap night, and that sort of just made me known around Dallas. And ultimately, Brock introduced me to this dude Roger, who's this DJ from Denton named Reraj, who like made beats and DJed, and like he was just like, you guys should hook up. You should start working together. And so I remember Roger started playing me beats and I started going up to Denton and just like recording on a digital four track with a Radio Shack mic with him and going to shows and then just like he introduced me to Jeremy and that's when we started doing that live band right, thing, right. you know. I was, you know, going to school full time and then working as a lighting technician um, at my school and then around Dallas like doing light tech stuff for theater and opera and ballet and like I was... For money? For money, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, totally, okay. totally. And, like, that was sort of, like, still, like, I loved rapping, and it was, like, but it was still always, like, I'm going to be a lighting designer. Right, you didn't think of rapping as a career. No, it was just, like, something right. awesome that right. I got to do, and, like, it was just this cool thing. And, like, um, then, like, over time, like, became, like, the dude that opened up for everybody. And Whenever somebody would come through town? Yeah, just would come through town. Would you hook that up Brock somehow? Uh, I just started to get, mostly because so many shows at that time were coming through Denton. This is the time that you guys were starting to tour pretty heavy, and so, like, it was sort of a no-brainer, too. Like, you guys and Atmosphere, you know, we're all starting to kind of tour. Yeah, the indie rap type yeah, stuff. Yeah, totally. And so, like, and, yeah, like, I saw Atmosphere. like, it was 99. So, it was, like, Atmosphere did their first, you know, tours. Then I saw them play in a fucking bowling alley in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you know, a couple years later, I started to see you guys. And I started to see Sage. And I started, everyone started to come through. And I started just being the dude that opened up for everybody. That was just sort of just because, like, I got known from hosting these shows and I was like the only dude that was sort of doing 
weird shit in Dallas, right, you know, right. at the time. Like, you know, the only dude, you know, there's other dudes that were doing stuff, but not like being kind of public about it. Like, and I was the guy that was playing shows. And so when folks like you guys started to come through, they're like, oh yeah, get Andy, you know? Did you have any, any recordings at the time out mm-hmm. or you were just dabbling with the four track? It wasn't until 2001 that I put out an EP that was three songs. Okay. Roger made uh, all the beats for it. Maybe I made one beat. I think maybe I made one beat. I can't on remember. acid. On acid, yeah, yeah, totally. And um, on acid, on acid, on acid, on acid. <laughs> Not on acid yet, but on acid. Yeah, I made one beat, and then I moved to Colorado and worked as a lighting designer for this theater in Colorado for the summer. Like I, I became, I started as a lighting intern and then became the master electrician because I just knew what the fuck I was doing, and they needed help. Um, you know about like technical electro- electric stuff. Yeah, yeah, I got, I got really good at it. I mean, the un- thing that's unfortunate is like I learned. Light automated lights were just starting to come in, and they were, st- but they were still super expensive, and so no one had them. You would be like, they were literally like ninety thousand dollars. So I barely touched automated lights ever, so I didn't really know anything about yeah, automated lights. Analog, this is all analog yeah. stuff still. It's like manually focusing, you know, and just using like, you know, techniques that you know, lights changed a little bit here and there, but basically techniques that were you know, fifty, hundred years old. Climbing lots of ladders. Climbing lots of ladders shimming out across pipes like fucking yeah monkey bars and the whole thing getting electrocuted a lot yeah um i was into it i loved it and um i did that sort of i took that on just initially because i was um i'm colorblind and i just wanted to try it to see if colorblind, i could do colorblind tone deaf the duck footed duck footed <laughs> yeah. can't act yeah the odds are against me yeah, yeah. um and uh, and so I just tried it and really got into it and just really fell in love with it and sort of excelled at it. And um, how do you how do you get over the color blindness with lighting? Like sort of just like teaching yourself what other people find pleasing, you know? Like because you sort of like what I what my problem is is that I mix up things that are of a similar hue. So like you take one of those big gel books, or swatch books, and you flip through it. Like you pull out something, and I'd be like purple, and be like nah, this is blue. So it was like I it would I would mix things up, but I sort of like taught myself. So I was like like taught myself how to dress that way too. When I was a kid, I would read W Magazine. Like uh, oh. my mom had W Magazine. And I would yeah. look at the fashion ads and like that's how I figured out like this is what people think looks nice. And fashion ads are so like visually evocative anyway. They're so like kind of declarative. Like this should make you be sexy. This should make you feel like you know sad. Like they're so right. like nail on the head. You know. And so it's really easy to just sort of get the idea of, like, what people's, like, emotional relationship to color is if you take it through that way or whatever. Because that's essentially what your job as a lighting designer is, you know, in theater and especially opera and ballet. It's, just, it's supposed to be sort of, like, super emotionally evocative generally. Like, it's not just making sure everybody's face can be seen. There's, are there very specific cues and shit that you have to do? Um, I mean, yeah, there's... Yeah, there's, it just all depends on the production, too. Yeah. Um, and some productions are really minimal, and some productions you have, like, <coughs> like, like 500 cues, you know, that you would go yeah. through just switching on the board constantly. And then, like, I did some stuff that was, like, um, a production of All in the Family that was five light cues, but they were, like, 30 minutes long because it was supposed to be, like, the passage of time in the backyard of, okay. of the, this, um, or All in the Family, All My Sons. Basically, that. Um, all in family. I was working on the set of All in Family. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was actually. I'm actually 70 years old. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, um, um, all my friends. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, I was always just gonna do, to do theater, and I started doing more shows and more shows and like playing shows in Austin and like did South by Southwest and. You know. Did you? How did you get into this this like underground hip hop scene, like Anaconda stuff, Atmosphere, Josh Martinez, all this shit? 
How did you start hearing about that stuff? Uh, the first time I heard about Anticon was there's a record store in Jacksonville. A guy played me. What was the name of that first music for the advancement of hip hop? Yeah, called yeah. yeah. He played me that. I think not Nazis for the hatred of other people. Or yeah, something yeah, something, like that. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your white supremacist record. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, he played that for me in like '99. I guess is when it came out. And he was like, "You like rap music? You listen to this." I remember listening to this and being like, "That's when it came out." I think. Yeah. '98, '99. Yeah, Jacksonville had a really good like weird indie music scene. At the time, um, and I remember him playing me that record and just being like, I, not even being able to wrap my head around it, because just listening to like I'm still listening to New York, you know. Did you sort of hate it at first, or you, you were like, this is? I was confused by it, and yeah. like then I felt like the first record that I got into in that direction was Company Flow. Yeah. I remember hearing the fire in which you burn, burn which is that crazy, like, off-pattern drum. That shit's hard. It's so gnarly, yeah. dude. And just being like, what? And that sitar and their patterns, it was just like, what? Yeah. So blown away yeah. by that, but still being like, I don't know if I can feel this, yeah. but I really am glad it exists. Right. And I special ordered that CD because I heard one song on the DJ Hay- the DJ Premier mixtape that he did with For Hayes or whatever, and it had the Eight Steps Perfection on it. I heard that, and then I got the record. And Eight Steps Perfection was like kind of like a classic boom bap song, sort uh-huh. of. You know, just like it's a, an LP beat though. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. an LP beat, and it's like, and it sort of just still feels very New York. It still felt at home on this DJ Premier mixtape. Yeah. You know? And so I or a special or paid like fucking price seventeen dollars for that company right. for a record. I remember getting it, putting it in, and just being like, "What?" So confused by it, but still like keeping the CD and like going back to it like every few months. You're drawn like, towards it. Still can't get why I don't like it, but still can't get myself to get rid of it. And then I heard yeah the music for the advancement of hip hop, and then I heard the Deep Puddle Dynamics, and I was still kind of all the same sort of relationship with that, where it was like I'm not really getting it yet like yeah. but I couldn't shake it and then I heard Bottle of Humans was the record that did it for me and you like that and I was like I heard the uh, that other stuff's a little more cerebral if you think about it totally totally and it's definitely more <laughs> far out like sound wise like yeah. and just content wise and and Tim still raps like yeah. he still rap even though he didn't he didn't always rhyme he still rap cause he's, yeah. and it was funny cause like then getting to know Tim years later and talking about the rappers that influenced him, they were the same rappers that I listened to. Right, okay. You know, and so it was like he had sort of pushed beyond that in his own way or whatever. Which is too, other than like Lord Finesse. Yeah, like, like a lot of the boot camp clique. He was okay. like a huge, I know he was a huge like uh, Buckshot fan. and like Anybody that wore camouflage. Any, that, right, exactly, anybody yeah. that wore camouflage in Timberlands that was from Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah all that shit. And so well, that was the shit that I grew up on. So, I, you know, subconsciously there was like a lot, through line there. I remember listening to that record and still being so confused by parts of it. But then that made me sort of like go back and listen to the other records and just being like, oh, yeah. now I get it. And actually like Brock playing the Deep Puddle record for me. He liked that shit? Totally, totally. It was how, funny. How did he get into that shit? Just through like some of his weird rap friends in Dallas. Like, cause it's funny cause he grew up on just like G-Funk shit and Outkast and Too Short. Just listening to that shit. And like when I met Brock, Brock was wearing a windbreaker suit, had like diamonds like a like shaved head with a pencil beard like a whole right. nine I had a shaved head with a pencil beard Ooh, it was great it's a hot look <laughs> he, had a, he had a credit card for Hellsberg diamonds like just G'd up pushing a Chevy what? Malibu and uh, shit yeah totally he's full blown redneck now he were, you know he, he he reminds me of Buddy Garrity from Friday Night Lights do you watch Friday Night Lights <laughs> yeah, totally man <laughs> something about him man totally I mean, part of it is just he has that Texas accent oh man and he's just he is fully moving his, moving out of Dallas and into small town texas he's totally fully embraced it and i think the road too kind of did it to him even yeah. more but yeah it's so like i was getting into all of that and and we were just sort of like there was a dude this dude glenn 
who like booked the first atmosphere shows in Dallas, like booked a lot of the first early hip hop. And he sort of had connections to all these people, but he didn't really, he was, wasn't feeling a lot of the weirder stuff. Right. And so he sort of just would pass this shit on to us. Like, so you know, atmosphere was the weirdest he would get. Yeah. That was about yeah. like, well, atmosphere was about as weird as he would get. And then he would sort of just like pass it on. Like the Josh Martinez, I think we got Josh Martinez connection like through that, through you know, and, you know, just other, like, weird shows and then booking shows around Dallas. Dallas artists booking shows with Austin rappers coming up and just sort of, like, no one was booking. The closest you would get is, like, there was, like, a huge, like, kind of drum and bass scene in Dallas at the time. And so you would get, like, drum and bass nights that would have weirdo rappers. That sort of weird overlap that would happen. Right, right. But, like, rapper rappers didn't really like drum and bass rappers because drum and bass rappers aren't actually very good rappers, you know? And that was always sort of a thing. You just say like, that on the, in the fucking Queen's homeland. Oh, yes, yeah, man, Jesus Christ. I'm going to get fucking shanked by Lady Sovereign. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, but, like, uh, not, not, not a lot of people were booking those shows, and we wanted to see those shows. And I hate it promoting. It's the worst. That job sucks. I would hate it. I, it. I would never. We did. It. I mean, we did it for about a year. It was just like, this is it. We're done. Yeah. It just sucked. And, like, we met, we opened up for Atmosphere, this one show at a skate park out in Garland. They had... That's the funny part about <laughs> having a conversation in the stairwell. Um, we need to walk by. Yeah, sometimes people use the stairs. Sometimes people want to take the stairs. Um, they had a girl, these girl DJs opening up for them. I don't know if they're on the tour. One of them was tour managing. She's this girl named Jamie. We like she really, like, loved the sh- really enjoyed the show or whatever. And like she was booking that summer for the Warp Tour for like this tiny little hip hop stage on the Warp Tour. And I didn't have an album. I had, like, me these little EPs or whatever. I was just, like, hand-burned, like, mm-hmm. spray-paint stencils. And you shit. would just, like, get a few songs done. Yeah, burn 50 CDs, play around. a show, pass them out some, five bucks yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Just, like, you know, nuts around, you know? Like, sure. never really any, like... And there would be, like, five-song EPs. I would take a lot of live recordings of freestyles, put them on there. So just, like, whatever. Like, whoa, I can make, like, 45 bucks doing right. this? Like, that's right. tight, you know? And um, she asked... It's a month's worth of food. Yeah, because I was just, like, mind-blowing. They're like, whoa, I just, like, made 50 bucks tonight yeah. off of rap music. Yeah. That's crazy. And she was, like, booking for that Warp Tour, and she and Brock had stayed in touch. She just asked if we wanted to play it. And, oh. and Brock was, we paid no money. Yeah. And Brock was just, like, fed up with his job. He had his job for nine years. And he was just like, man, let's just do it. Let's just do it. And he sold his Chevy Malibu, and he bought a Honda Element. And it was a smart move. Tour or no tour? Yeah, smart move. Tech, he's from Michigan. His family's from Michigan and Texas. How dare you buy, buy a fucking car. foreign car, not a Chevy. Yeah. Like, specifically, not a Chevy, not a GMC. Yeah. You know? Um, and um, and we ended up putting over 300,000 miles on that car yeah, over the years. Damn. Um, I slept in that car so much. But we did that one summer to just, like, see... Because it's one thing, like, when you're playing in your hometown... And all your friends come out, and like, you know, even like you can win a crowd over because you got 50 but your boys there, you know, whatever. And it was like, let's see just what people think of this. Yeah. And I went out and I had just like a bunch of instrumentals for my, like, you know, for different beats, other people's music. And I would freestyle over and I had like four or five songs. And I burned these CDs. I burned like 50 CDs a day. And just try to hustle CDs all day. And then we were doing, I'd been doing stencil graffiti at the time. And so we made like, bought a bunch of like bulk blank trucker hats and we were spray painting stencils and trucker hats and selling them for 10 bucks or whatever. And just like making money to get. Did people come? How does it work? I don't know. I've never done a tour yeah. like that. Was Is it like you get the runoff of, of like the larger stages or you get. Yep. 
Because it's like a carnival, man. It's like yeah. a traveling carnival, and no one's there to see you, but there's 20,000 people there today. Yeah. And people are just wandering around because there's vendors and all this shit and skateboard ramps, and they're just like, you know, waiting while they're waiting for their band, and they're just strolling around. Right. And so you become like a carnival barker. Right. Completely. Right. And I would just get the longest mic cord that I could get and just like crank up freestyle beats and just like freestyle as people were walking by and rap about them. Talk just, about like, them. Throw people in. You yeah. Know? And it like, it was, it was just like, let's see if this works, you know? Warped Tour back then was different. It was 2003. I graduated from college. Let me backtrack a little bit. I graduated from college in 2003, and we're like, let's do this. If nothing comes of it. You broke up with, with the, the waitress. Oh, yeah. That's long By since that been done. Yeah. Okay. And it was just like, it was like, let's see where this goes. If it doesn't, I can always just go back to doing lighting. I had a great resume in lighting, but let's just see. We got to fucking try. Brock was like, I'm done with my job. I got to get the fuck out of here. I got to go do something else in my life. So like, let's give it a whirl. And so... I did it for three years, and I, over the course of three years, it progressed. Oh, you did it three years in a row. Three years in a row. Oh, wow. Spoiler alert. And, um, and, but back then, like, everybody hung out with everybody. The big bands hung out with little bands. I remember, like, that time, that time the band Thursday was, like, the biggest band in America. And the, I've never even heard of that. Yeah. Uh, there, Is it, like, what kind of stuff? Jersey Screamo. Okay. Um, and, like, the lead singer, like his girlfriend was working in the tent next to me and like she like was like you should come watch this and he started watching it and he started telling everybody else dude Jeff Rickley's the fucking nicest dude I still know he started telling other bands and like I was like in Charlotte at a show afterwards like selling CDs and this dude comes up and taps me on the shoulder and he's like hey man it's a good show and I'm like ah oh, cool man thanks and like selling like whatever if you're gonna buy something you know whatever and I kind of like glance at him and I go back and he's like oh man you, you need, it's like this dude in a leather jacket with a fucking fedora on and he's like you should come watch my band play later and I'm like yeah, whatever buddy like there's fucking you know 50 bands on the damn tour right. I just think he's some fucking whatever and then I'm like you know handling business or whatever and like and I just I'm like look at him and I'm like oh what and just kind of glance at him and I'm like what's your, uh, where are you playing and he's like oh we're playing at 8.30 like over on the, the whatever stage was like, and I knew it was one of the main stages. Uh-huh. I was like, Wait, what? And I turn and look and it's fucking Tim Armstrong from Rancid and Operation oh, Ivy. wow. And it was just like, I didn't grow up on that shit but I grew up in a beach town so yeah. I grew up just immersed in you punk. You recognized them anyway. You knew punk bands just because you sit on my parents' front porch today all day and you'll hear a Rancid song blasting out of a Jeep yeah. or a Sublime song blasting out of a Mustang. Like, it's beach culture. It doesn't change. What is, is he still running one of those bands or is it a new band? He's, he is still in Rancid. Rancid. Yeah, and he, I mean, Rancid tours everyone saw. He had a band called Transplants with Travis Barker from Blink-22 and then he produces records and writes like pop songs. This is where the story kind of goes funny. He invites me to this show and I like watch it up on stage and this is just like crazy. Like I'm, this is my first tour Watching ever. Rancid I'm stage. on stage. Yeah. Like I've just like never thought like <clears throat> and like I'm up there and I'm just watching the fucking crowd and it's like Charlotte's beautiful outdoor venue and like a storm starts to come in and there's clouds everywhere and there's a big circle pit and it's just like this. 20,000 people. Yeah, just fucking rock and roll, yeah. man. And I'm like, I had never seen anything like this before in my life. And he's, like, just talking to me like I'm a normal dude and just, like, bugging out about my ability to freestyle. And I'm like, dude, you're fucking, you're, you're a boss, man. I'm just yeah. an idiot, you know? And he's, we start talking over the course of that tour, and he is a sober dude. And he would just, like, he had a studio in the lounge on his bus, and he wouldn't go out because he didn't want to be tempted to drink or do drugs. And so he would just work on music all day, and he would just pull people from in bands world. He would, like, stroll, like, the, the, the shows, you know, sort of, like, kind of low-key and spot bands and just, like, listen for people and just, like, oh, that drummer, the drummer in this band is the shit. Come check it. And so you just pull them and pull them, like, literally set up drums in the back lounge and mic it and record it and you just write songs. 
and he was like super prolific like and he ended up writing songs for like Pink and Enrique Iglesias and like all he still writes songs so he was de- he was demoing songs yeah just like, and he would like over the course of the summer he would write 200 songs yeah wow but he, he couldn't write lyrics like that but he could write music just like crazy and he ended up producing like you know put out Joe Strummer's records like he was just like doing this you know and like he saw me freestyle and he's like man I can't write lyrics you can do lyrics and he came to me like that my first tour ever and was like let's write songs together what? And I'm just like, <laughs> like yeah. totally dumbfounded by it. And I like go there and I'm, he was like, what you'll do is just like come ride with me one night on the bus and we'll just hang out and work on music. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever, yeah, you know, yeah. like just like, holy how, shit. How old are you? You're like 22. I am 21 years old. 21. Yeah, just straight out of college. Yeah. And um, I'm just, just blown away. And I end up riding on the bus and like, like what's his name again? Tim Armstrong. Tim Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, sure most people know who that is. No, most, yeah, yeah. No, totally. If you didn't grow up in it, you didn't grow up in it. And, yeah, like, yeah, and yeah. the thing is, like, I am not like gonna be like, oh, I'm the biggest. Like, he was in a band called Operation Ivy, and then yeah. became rancid. And like, I mean, I, I know I've you know the name. Very much heard of those two bands. Seen yeah. the t-shirts. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, seen the t-shirts. And I just like would be sort of in the same position if it wasn't for just growing up at where I grew up. Yeah. Know? But knew enough to know that, like, this guy was, like, a th- a, you know, a thing. Like, I, all my friends grew up on punk, and so they right. were, like, they all bugged out as soon as right. I told them. Right, And, like, So um, you, you're, you ride the bus with him. Yeah, like, at the end of the tour, Brock was going to go back. He was going to, the last five days of the tour, he was going to go to Scribble Jam. And okay. I was going to finish out the tour, but I didn't have a ride. And it was just like, I'll figure it out, you know? And I got drunk one night and just asked him. I was like, can I ride on the bus? I need this ride for the last five days. Like, oh, yeah, that's the guys, whatever. And like um, he, he the bus was it was it, this is the rancid tour bus. All the dudes from all the dudes from rancid on this bus. <laughs> and he comes back like an hour later. He's like, yeah, man, we got a bunk. That's just like a gear bunk. We'll clear it out, man. You can ride with us for five days. It felt like some like almost famous shit. Like yeah. I'm like riding yeah. in New York City on the tour bus, and we're like listening to Creedence Clearwater Revival and just like sunset and, and just like just amazing like, magical shit. You know? Yeah. I still have pictures from it too. And like um, <laughs> we like started like we never actually got to write songs that summer. And he gave me his number, and he's like, man, let's, like, hook up. I want to bring you out to L.A. We'll work. Let's work, man. And I'm like, awesome, dude. And he sort of just, like, flaked and disappeared. And I never heard from him again. I put out my first record and started going on my first tours. And I did the Warp Tour again in 04. And he wasn't on it that year. And they did like, was starting to kind of tour, like, more and more and more and getting more dates. But still, like, self-booked. You know, it's those kind of tours that you'd have, like, fucking five days off in Rhode Island or whatever. Some like, shit fell through. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You just like you would book a tour. My first tour that I booked after the Warp Tour was like just building out any connections that I had. Punk connections, rap yeah. connections, any connections that it was like Kansas City, Missouri and then like Portland, Oregon. You know, and then like <laughs> right. Lansing, Michigan, then like Troy, New York, right. then Portland, Maine and like just like anything you could get and just like having like five days off just crashing on some, you know, nice fucking girl's couch for yeah. five days eating ramen noodles and uh-huh. shit. The promoter would always hook you up because you're playing this sort of kind of dirtbag show. It always yeah. Be like, yeah, you can stay at my house. I got you know, I got this bed that's made of cigarettes and cat hair that right. you can sleep on. <laughs> right. You're totally welcome to stay there. Yeah, you go to the sink in the bathroom. Yeah, totally. And like, you're gonna have to deal with the fact that I'm a junkie. Like, it's, but it's no big deal. My house is currently on fire, but you'll be fine. <laughs> um, it's really warm inside. And like, then you start to like, just that was when you start to like, that was those are the kind of tours when you'd be on stage being like, we don't have a place to stay tonight. Oh god. And that's just like, man. I remember those. And then you'd have those occasional nights where you'd just be at the end of the night. Everybody clearing out, and you'd look at Brock, and you'd be like, "Sleeping in the car, I guess." Huh? Yeah. And then there'd be nights too where you'd just be like, 
I don't know, this guy's fucking weird. Yeah. We're sleeping in the car tonight. Yeah. And you sleep in the car, and that Honda, the seats folded back flat. You would fucking, I slept in that car so much. I got to the point where you, Brock still has that Honda. Yeah. And I, I, I still sleep like a baby in that damn thing. We had, you know, I mean, we would sometimes, we'd have one designated van sleeper because the neighborhood is not great. Oh, totally. you want to get jacked. Totally, you know? absolutely, man. And then, or, you know, sometimes it's it's really the better option to the the disgusting house that you get brought to. I remember the first. God bless them. I mean, they're putting you up, but man, sometimes man, some of those you know, dudes are filthy. And then the other thing too is that like dudes that just want to smoke like mass blunts and get you to freestyle yeah, all night, yeah, and you're yeah. just be like, nah, exactly, that ain't yeah. me. Like yeah. the switch to, to decided to do hotels every night, even though you know we took less money home, was a real good decision. I man, think. when I got to that point where we looked around and we were like, we can afford to do this. Yeah, that was a life changing yeah. experience, man. Like that was just. Oh, you just have so much more energy, like you're not <sighs> zapped every moment. It's one. <laughs> it's like a, one of those milestones where you're like, man, if we're in the position, we're fin- generally financially in the position where we don't have to sleep at some shitbag house if we don't want to. That was like Valhalla, man. Like that was just felt like yeah. the most perfect thing ever. Yeah, <laughs> we got we got back on the works with the 2005 was the last year that we did it and. Sort of wrap up the story about Tim Armstrong, which is sort of, inter- this oh, is sort of yeah. the interesting part. Yeah. Uh, and I've never actually told this story in an interview either, too. So, like, he was on tour with his band, The Transplants. I, like, bumped into him, and I was just like, Tim, what's up, dude? Just like, at, at his show? or Just at- saw him, like, backstage. Like, we're on, like, that tour is so big, like, it's, you know, it's hard to see people. Yeah. And, like, we're kind of low in the totem pole, so I didn't have access to all the stages sure, or whatever. Sure. But I just happened to bump into him backstage in Tampa one day, and I was like, dude, what's up, man? Where'd you go? And he was just like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. But, like, he was super excited to see me again. He was like, let's work on music. And so I started, like, we actually for real worked on music. In the, in the bus again? In the bus. Like, actually started to do stuff. And he would bounce through Pro Tools sessions. Just open something, play it. What do you think of this? And we're like, mm, nah, next song. Bounce through, bounce through, bounce through. And like, stop. All right, loop it. Loop it from this part to this part. Give me 15 minutes. And, like, I would sometimes write some shit. Sometimes just freestyle, like, five takes on it. And sometimes, like... You know, just do harmony, melody stuff, just like fucking around. Basically, he was just, we were blasting through songs that he just had all this music for. And he would later go through and cut them up or what? Totally, totally. And like, he had like a song like he was writing for his like solo record. He had just been like, gone through this crazy divorce with this, this girl who was his lead singer in his band called The Distillers. It was like this crazy sort of public thing. She like cheated on him with a dude from the Queens of the Stone Age. And he wrote this song and it was like, you know, he would like write a song and he get... You really like emotionally, you write it out of just emotion and you get halfway through and then you go back to write it a couple days later, you're not in the motion anymore, you can't finish the song. I was like, yeah, man, I totally know that feeling. He's like, well, I got this song about my ex wife. Like, and I want you to finish it. He was like, I want you to finish it. And I wrote the second verse for that song. At the end of the tour, like, I'm gonna fly you out to LA. We're gonna become a songwriting duo. What? And that's like, the money. That's what I was the just like, at. I was like, my <laughs> career is built. Yeah. I'm done. This yeah. is great. I was like talking to his manager. His assistant was like, we're going to book your plane ticket next week. All this shit. And I was like, back, I was still living with my parents in Florida. Like, I had moved back from Texas and put all my shit in my parents' after house. After school. After school. And we were like, living with there. And I was there, like, talking on the phone. He's like, yeah, we're going to book your plane ticket next week. You're going to come out. We'll just book you a one-way ticket. You come out there. We're just going to hammer out music. And I was just like, this is the shit. This is the best. And I never heard from him again. Oh, man. Never, ever heard from him again. I checked his, like, records periodically to see if any of those songs came out and like none of them came out and I have since slowly the freestyle stuff like I don't even know because it's freestyle yeah. stuff but then like the stuff that I wrote I had saved the word files 
and have since like I've got one song left from those sessions that okay. I'm actually gonna be putting on my new record. Okay. The lyrics okay. from that I'm gonna be putting on my new record. Like tweaked them a little bit and put yeah. them, made a piece of music for it. And, but yeah, never ever heard from him again. What do you think it was? Do you think he like? What had happened was he went into rehab because the dudes in the transplants were all like just on mass drugs all the time doing so like. He went back to it. They're all codeine dudes, syrup dudes, and he like and he, I think from the rumor that I heard through like all my punk friends is that he actually didn't slip, but he felt so close to it that he just checked himself into rehab and disappeared, and I just never heard from him again. And I would text him every once in a while, I'd email him every once in a while, I never heard from him again, and. Was really bummed about it for yeah. a long time. Yeah, I was really bummed about it for a long time. And really, like, mad about it for a while, too. Um, and then uh, then just sort of kind of, like, you know, got over it or whatever. You think he was just kind of just gassed up about the mo- in, the, in the moment in a way and was just like... Yeah, I don't know, man. Like, he's sort of, like, he's a super sweet dude, and, but he's definitely, like, a recovering drug addict. Yeah. He's one of those, he's yeah. a lifer, man. Flaky. He's flaky, but more also too. He's like a, he's a he's a spacey dude. Like yeah. he's a spacey dude when you talk to him. Like he's not he he's fried. Like, he's a heroin yeah. dude, like a hardcore ass heroin okay. dude. Okay. And so he's not like the most clear headed dude. He's a brilliant guy and really amazing, super kind and super talented and super interesting to talk to and work with. But like he's he would like kind of space out in conversation and shit. Like just old old drug addict shit, yeah. you know. And so, who knows, man? Like, I, I don't even know. Like, he definitely was flaky, and I've talked to other people that said he was pretty notoriously flaky. But, like, and you know, like, I don't think that he had any... None of these malicious. Yeah. I mean, he definitely no. didn't use the songs. I just think he's a fucking... Just not a fucking reliable Johnny. Sure. Know? He and the woman from... God, I remember Linda... The woman from Four Non Blondes were putting out, like, they were working on records together a lot. And he had won, like, a Grammy for, like, Pink's records. And he was already in that. He was already so doing he, it. He was, he was ghostwriting. Or not ghostwriting, really. Just, you don't call it that. Yeah, just writing for just people. Just writing for yeah. people and writing for, like, her and Enrique Iglesias and a bunch of other people. And what his plan was... It's that we were, so weird. Like, the dude from Rancid writes songs for Enrico Iglesias. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's so strange. But, like, it was funny because, like, he would... He just got to that point where he could just hammer out music. And he's one of those dudes that, like, isn't, like a brilliant guitarist but he's like he knows how to play yeah he loves all music and so he could just be like I'm gonna play a country song I'm gonna play a calypso song because he just knew it all and so he just had an ear for it all and he was just a music nerd you know at that point I've been touring for three years and just like sleeping in cars and eating ramen noodles and I was like cool yeah here it is buddy This this is my career I can make whatever and he was like we were going to make Records like solo records. I would write the music. There would be Tim. I would write the lyrics. He would write the music. There'd be Tim Armstrong records. You put him on his own record label, which is Hellcat, which is a division of uh, Epitaph. And then he would basically use those solo records as demos for pop stars to, to pitch other the, the, uh, things. Yeah. We're going to sell yeah, totally twenty times the amount. Yeah, totally. And. Uh, that's and a dream. That's it a, was like even to this day, that's a cream. Oh, dream, dude! Right? If if Tim Armstrong yeah. called me up yeah. tomorrow and said, oh, well, let's, "We're getting the band back together," I would yeah. be on the. I'm booking my flight this time, Tim. I'm coming my way. I would do it in a heartbeat because I loved the thing too. Is I loved working with him. Yeah, we had a blast working together, and we were really good at it. And I was just getting to the point where I was understanding melody and like how to really like I'm so far beyond that yeah. where I was and was just still but still had a pretty good ear for it where I could freestyle choruses like right. melodic choruses right. and like we had a really good time it was great and it was just like one of those things like man if that that's the dream 
That's the dream to be able oh, to like yeah. I can continue to make my weird records, but then write songs for these pop stars. Right. That's the, the like you were saying. You know, you you always, at least early on, you thought of music as a craft in a way more so than uh, the theater stuff, and that that is the craft side. Yeah. You know, astronaut stuff is the uh, art side. Yeah. Whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Totally, yeah. totally, man. In a heartbeat. Yeah, I would do it again in a heartbeat. I was, uh, and it's a bummer that it never panned out. Um, but that was like that was those are my first three years of touring, and that's like seven years ago, and like that was the how it started for me. And it was such a del- funny delusion too. That's where I started was getting this right. taste of this thing. amped up about yeah, this. Yeah, totally, and then just like getting amped up and kicked down and amped up yeah. and kicked down and amped up and kicked down. But that's isn't that in a way what this whole thing is, and getting used to those ups and downs and understanding that when there's an up, you know, I don't say, oh my god, I say. Yeah, yeah, sure. Make it whatever, happen. Whatever. And yeah. if it doesn't happen, you don't get disappointed. It's told, yeah. 90% of things that come your way and that you're told are going to happen don't happen. They're, it's it's almost way. always dark alleys. And I've yeah. just gotten to the point where you never anticipate any of it happening. Oh, Tom Cruise is coming to the show tonight. Totally. That's uh, cool. Oh, I'll tell you, man. Yeah. Awesome, bro. That's sure. Cool. Like, yeah, no, like, I can't tell you how many times. It's always like, um,. It always takes like four times. like four times before like someone was like, well, "I'm going to bring you to Europe. You're coming to Europe." And they disappear. Yeah, I'm going to bring you to Europe. They disappear. And like fourth time, finally, yeah. it's like this is an agent. He's booking you. You're going to Europe. And then you don't believe it until you are through customs, right. fucking looking at a motherfucker with a baguette. Like you right. don't believe right. it until that's then. Right. You know. And it's just, and all of that. Like you know how many times like my booking agent has been like, "I'm th- this close to getting you this tour." Right. And I'm, you're like. Gotta just keep even keeled, just man. Cool. You just don't never just cool. Never expect. No, nah, man, because it's always gonna you. You just get to, you'll get destroyed. Yeah. You know? And like I got that the Tim Armstrong stuff really wrecked That's me. A lesson early on. Yeah, and it was a hard lesson to learn early on, but it prepared me. Like it made me way more relentless down the line because then the next those first three years were really fun, but sort of really wild, and I was sort of like not. I was sort of just like. Didn't really, we didn't really know what we were doing. We were sort of just kind of figuring it out. But sort of had this weird, like, crazy up, but then just dragging the bottom of, like, the you know the worst kind of touring, you know? Why did you stop doing the Warped Tour shit? Like, did you get sick of it, or, or did they not invite you back? No, I mean, I had an open invite. It was just that I had... I felt like I had gotten everything out of it that I could. Yeah. Um, and it's also just, like, it's a raw deal. Like You don't get paid well. You don't get paid at all. Oh, like, We were getting paid at all. It was just all merch sales. And yeah. you would sell a ton of merch. And at the time, it was great because you would sell, if you hustled, you could sell 50 to 100 CDs a night. Wow. Which is, like, amazing. Yeah. And, like, you know, granted, there are still people that come to my shows that bossies for me those, those okay, tours okay. Um, but like you know there's, I'm sure there's for every one of those people there are like you know I'm selling CDs for five bucks and people right. you know how many how many people are just like whatever you're fucking funny and charming I'll take this yeah, CD listen yeah. to it twice through it in the fucking garbage you know like and so it got to the point where it was just like we could do it we would make money on it but we're not really making fans we need to start playing our own shows and at that point like you I think could, you didn't retain fans it was, it was we were getting some yeah but it was just sort of like and the other thing too is that my music was becoming less I wanted to make, like, the first record, you make your first record, it's, like, all the songs you had at the time, you know? And I wanted to make a record, and I always had this idea for, like, what I wanted to sound like, and I wanted it to just be the prettiest record that I could make. And so it was just not warp Tour music. It wasn't music that I could, A, compete, like, sound level-wise with my chemical romance playing on fucking, right. you know, 50,000 watts. too subtle. Yeah, and it was just, like, and it was just, like, pretty and singy, and it was, like, and just wasn't right for it. So it was, like, cool, it's time to move on. We did it for three years. And at that time, too, the Warped Tour was changing as well. 
where the first year we started out, it was, like, super supportive. Like, it was this really awesome thing where, like I had said, like, all the big bands, like, the little bands, like, everybody just kicked it. Mm-hmm. And by the end, that fifth year, it was, like, the height of, like, the fucking emo bang kind of thing going on. And, like, the first year, like, a big band would just buy a bunch of beer and invite everybody and we'd have a big party. And it was just, like, everybody can come. And by that third year... They, they would have these parties afterwards, but they would literally, like, circle buses, and they would be sponsored by, like, Samsung. Oh. And it was just, like, guy, it was garbage. It was just dumb. And it was just, like, the, it was just gross. It felt gross. And it wasn't, like, this cool thing. And, like, but from that, like, that's where I'd met Dibs and Atmosphere, like, for real. Like, I had known them. They were, they were on War Tour. Because they did it. Atmosphere did it for the first time in 2003, 2004, and I think they did it in 05, too. And um and that was like when they put out a record on Epitaph and like I became that's when I became like homies with Dibs and like uh-huh. got to know all those guys or whatever and like uh and so it was like a really cool time for that sort of thing um, but then eventually it was just like the it, the era was done so yeah it was just and we sort of started to establish ourselves our tours are getting a little bit better. And we were working on that record. Did you have an agent at that point from no. through all that or no? No, no. So you so you would you would book your own shit. When did you get an agent? <laughs> two years ago. Two and a half years ago. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, so we were self booked we like submitted to every agency and got turned down over and over and over again. Cool. Then we just stopped trying. And they're like, Well fuck it. And then so Brock was booking these tours and we were literally booking like sixty date tours in America. He he had developed enough of a relationship. Yeah, and we had this other know. dude that was sort of helping us out as well and was sort of there tag teaming it and like we would book these tours that were just like two month tours, sixty dates, and we were making money. And then all of a sudden, like I had a friend that worked at Windish, and I was like talking to her bitching about not having an agent. She was like, "You don't have an agent?" I was like, "No." She's like, "How do you book these tours?" And we would do it ourselves. And like I think the like literally the word got out that like, oh, everyone just assumed I had an agent, right? And when you're touring, because we're just time. doing crazy, relentless <laughs> yeah. tours. And then we like went on tour with Bren, like we did a tour with Alias, and we we're like doing these like great shows and getting great shows and shit and promoters like we were losing money for promoters left and right early on but like promoters loved to lose money on us because they were like they really liked what we were doing and like there's so many promoters that I owe so much to because they would just like just fucking suck it up and take it on the chin for us because they just really believed in what we were doing same here yeah Yeah, totally I mean like that was sort of like there were so many times they would just be like come back I need you to come back you're gonna come back on a Saturday I'm gonna book you with this band it's gonna work it's gonna work you know and so many times and then we ultimately went with the agency group and like we played a show in LA at the Knitting Factory my agent came out that day and made me an offer without he'd never even seen me play before really and he was just like I, I want to book you. And who, like, who, who, who is this it? This guy, David Strunk, and he still books okay. me today. And he was like, literally before I'd even played the show, and I was like, have you seen a show? And he's like, nope, nope. He just saw all the tours that we were doing. He's like, this if they're doing this, like, yeah. it was like, they, they, and he said, he was like, all of the agents thought you had an agent. Right. And at that point, we had the option between that one and another agency. I can't remember the name of it, like a boutique agency. And we ended up going with him, and that's, being great like the first thing that he got us was a show with Tegan and Sarah that led to three tours with Tegan and Sarah nice. like you know um, but that was like yeah that was bait almost three years ago yeah so the first like seven years of touring it was just Brock that's crazy and fucking MySpace and yeah. you know, just fucking grinding and out thousands of emails and just like and not really even knowing him it was really funny that Brock has a um, for the first like two years he has a database of just like what we got paid and it's hilarious because it's like $12, case of beer, $6, $32, no money, zero, like fucking, you know, just yeah. like, yeah. 
like and we'd have those tours where you like you just get paid in weed and like you'd sleep in the car and you'd have to like we would eat off the value menu at Wendy's and be like we have three dollars we can each spend three dollars on right. the value menu and like, right. then there would be days where we're just like we can't eat today we gotta <sighs> buy gas to get to fucking Omaha or whatever yeah. the fuck and get paid 35 Grinded bucks it out man fuck totally man you play sick cause you can't you needed that 50 bucks yeah. that you were gonna get so you oh, just yeah. had strep throat you know health insurance or whatever and like yeah. I did a lot of that. Yeah, totally. You had to. I mean, like, that's yeah. anybody that broke a band on the road. Like, yeah. that's what you had to do. You can't, you could not play the show. Yeah. You can't. Like, yeah. And in my experience, you can't, you know, the friends of mine that didn't grind it out like that uh, didn't do as well. You have to you go out and do the work and get, you can get in front of people and play your songs. You know? Almost everybody that I know that made a career out of music grinded it out. Yeah. At, at one point or another. And, like, uh, and the people that just kind of popped off. Like, and I have friends that became, like, huge off their first record or whatever. And most of those people... They fizzled. Fizzled, yeah, yeah, totally. And they, some of them, you know, become... You know, they get a fucking platinum album and then they sink back to this level that's sort of, like... Yeah. Like, basically where, you know, wh- around where we're at. Yeah. That's sort of maintainable, but, like, you know, not... Which is, which is great for us, but it's sad if you've had a platinum Totally, it's got to be a really <laughs> tough pill to swallow. Yeah. Like, I remember seeing kids that get signed to a major label or whatever, and, like... You know, their first record goes platinum. Their third record says 100,000, and then they're down to, like, 80,000 records, and it's just, like, terrible on a major label. But they're just yeah. like, I need to get out of my contract because if I, I can sell 80,000 records on an indie label. And if I sell 80,000 records on an indie label, I am well. fucking golden, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, like, and I remember just looking at those people, and, and then bands like... Tegan and Sarah started out touring like that. And, like, okay. they're... And I think what it does... Did their first record pop off like that? Mm-hmm. They put out tons of records and just grind it. They tour oh, they, 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 they like grind that. it, okay, yeah, totally. You, and they grind it in a van. And, like, and it's... I think what it does more than anything is it just builds this, like, relentless determination in you yeah. that just, like, this it, failure is unacceptable. Right. You ignore your physical health and your mental health and your emotional health all for this thing. Yeah, and like, yeah. Those people... Why do you have that? What is that? I don't know. It's, but I think it's sort of, it's, it's, it's funny. It's actually sort. Uh, I had this realization. Um, I remember watching like themselves play at Rubber Gloves for 150 people and be like, they've made. Right. And then I get to the point where I'm playing for 150 people and I'm like, oh. And then I'm watching somebody else like you know the next step up and I'm like, they've made it. It's all relative. And then I go on tour with Tegan and Sarah. And the first show I played was at Shepherd's Bush Empire in London. The day, the, the show I played before was two days before at an art gallery in Little Rock, Arkansas for eight people. There's like, that's 2,500 caps. 2,500 caps, sold out, like yeah. days in advance, like all, and it's like that beautiful opera style, so it's everyone's like right in your face, and like I walk out there and I'm playing with a laptop and a microphone. Yeah. And like, and I remember like playing in Vancouver, opening up for Tegan and Sarah, and like after doing the European tour, after seeing everything that they were doing, I played, they were playing two shows in Vancouver, and I was staying at Tegan's house, crashing on her couch in between, and she was just like, I gotta get, do some press, make, get up, make some coffee, make some at home, just lock the door on the way out, I'll see you at the show. So I'm walking around this cool loft, split-level loft, it's nothing amazing, but it's really nice, and I'm like, wow, they've made Right, you know? And, she doesn't think so. And then what's just funny is I'm looking around, and as I'm looking around, I notice that there's no tour memorabilia there's no tour posters nothing and there's only one thing there's no backstage passes nothing and that place isn't that big it's not hiding anywhere there's no secret awards closet you know and there's one thing and it's a backstage pass for a Gwen Stefani concert right and I know for a fact that they didn't go on tour with her because they were actually trying to go on tour with No Doubt or something like 
you know, tours like that are booked. Like, it was like 2009, they're trying to go on tour in 2011 with them. Right. Like, that's how that, that world works. And, like, I remember looking at that and thinking, like, man, I bet Tegan and Sarah went and watched her, and we're just standing on the side stage, and we're just like, oh, Gwen made. Stefani's made it. <laughs> yeah. And then I started to think about Gwen Stefani. She's in No Doubt, yeah. the biggest band in the world. They win a Grammy, and she's in this band, No Doubt. Yeah. And she probably went and watched a Madonna concert, exactly. saw Madonna, and was like, Madonna has made it. I Absolutely. need to put out a solo record. So what is it, what is it within uh, all of us that makes us feel dissatisfied with what we have? It's like, okay... You know, Seattle, we sold it out at four fifty. You know, yeah. This time, six fifty. It's like uh, it's like little by little, little steps, and you're just like, okay, totally. You know, last night after that, I was like, oh, this is great. We sold out of this video, but like that only stays for the for the day, and then the next time, <gasps> yeah. if we don't, you if know, you don't beat that. If we don't beat that, you are defeated. It's over. It's over. It's heartbreak. Oh, it's the worst, man. I totally. And I think what I said, I think it's like, um, a, I think it's necessary. I think it's and unfortunately it's what makes it's what makes successful artists successful, but it's also what makes successful artists terrible people a lot yeah. of times because it's necessary to be relentlessly unsatisfied. And I think that there is a thing that you, there is a like a, ne- a necessity for like dissatisfaction or um, with your with your previous piece or your previous success and always wanting the best. That trait can be funneled into different things. It can be funneled into the business. I played, I sold 650 in Seattle. I need to sell 800. I need to move up from Numos. I need to move up to the show box. Right. Like, you know, that sort of thing can be funneled into the business or it can be funneled into the, the art as right. well, too. Like, where artists lose their way, I think, is that they lose, I think it's important to have both. Yeah. And when artists lose the connection, that connection to their art, but main, to get, increase the connection to their business. Exactly. And I think it's so important to have both. It's a strange thing, and it's like there is this like constant forward movement that you have. There's like shark, a shark thing, mm-hmm. or, or or you're dead. You totally. know, totally. It was funny. Like on this to- on this tour, I was like really like super stoked that like way the way like because I, when I go out on tour with somebody, I don't want to just be dragged along. Like I want to be able to help with the draw. Like I want to be able to help with the night. Like I want to be a contributor to the thing. You know, as much as I like really appreciated when you know. Tegan and Sarah like brought me on tour. Like I was doing nothing to help right. with that. They You're brought helping me. us, and I. Pre- that's, yeah. I think this is a good situation. Oh, and it was interesting because like the first part of the tour, it was like like you know like talking to you guys and talking to Snake. Like this this is good. The numbers are yeah. up, and I was like cool. Like I am doing my part. Yeah. And I remember hearing that the, the numbers for the Minneapolis show like a week out, and after having just like you know a week and a half of just like man, we are killing it. We are yeah, selling out yeah. left and right, and then hearing the numbers for the Minneapolis show, which is like where you this live, is, this is where this is where I should be repping. Right. And I hear the numbers, and I'm like, that's terrible. Yeah, yeah. And I was a wreck. Yeah. For five days until like two days before, Snake was like, oh yeah, we're up to like five fifty or something, and like, and it was just like. And like I couldn't, I was cranky. Like I couldn't figure out why. Yeah. I, you know, like why you felt responsible? Because like yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's like, and partly too, like I wasn't going to take. We had just done a headlining tour in December, and I wasn't going to take another tour. And then this offer came through. And the, one of the main reasons I wasn't going to take another headlining tour is like, a, I, you know, pretty much a tour my record out, but I couldn't handle the stress of another headlining tour. Yeah. Because it's just like I am a fucking 
wreck yeah. on a headlining tour because I am so nervous about numbers and especially now that I have employees like I have a yeah. band and then we're taking out openers and I want to like and there's the other responsibility too like when you're headliner and you want to take out openers like I don't want to feel like I'm wasting their time Yeah, because yeah. they're people whose music I like I want to come out and I want them to be in front of people right. you know like right. I want it I want it all to be perfect, you know? And, like, and that's the thing that, like, it's the same with my records. And sort of, like, we had talked about, too, that, like, records aren't always... It's not necessarily fun. There are moments of fun making a record, but it's not necessarily fun. It's right. challenging you. There's a lot of just the grunt work just that goes into pushing it. your yeah. fucking whole life through... I have my friend, uh, Jamie from Axe and Apple, had this image of, like, um... Uh, and I don't know if she borrowed it from somebody or she came up with it. Either way, it was great. The idea of, like, um... Uh, m- moving a moving a beach into a building through a keyhole, right? Yeah, and it was just like, yeah, it's yeah, true. totally. Yeah, just feels image. like, that's just like, oh my god, um, yeah. And it's it's sucks a lot. Like I don't sleep. Yeah. I'm like when I'm in the thick of a record, I'm a fucking wreck. Yeah, but I love that. I yeah. love that challenge. Yeah. I love that feeling of like you don't get the reward from. Um, from the business side. Like, you don't get the No, you high. don't. You don't get the same... There, there's... I mean, there's a certain... Like, you know, I felt good last night after that show. And totally. then I was like, you know what? That was a good show. I, I felt the love from the audience. Smoked a joint and felt good. Yeah. But, like, it's not at all the same as the feeling when you crack that line that you've been trying to write for a while. And... Well, and you, you you start just laughing maniacally to yourself. There it is. I did it. I solved the answer to the universe. There it is. When a right song there. comes together, it yeah. is the greatest high of all time. Yeah. And you are constantly, and that's maybe it. That like, maybe that's it. Maybe because like maybe it's it's like some drug addict shit. You are constantly yeah. chasing that high. You're constantly but, chasing that. I mean, but there's something to it. Like like there's something to what I just said. I think like trying to figure your place out in the universe. When, when when things do come together in the way that your mind believes they should or, or, or your heart believes they should or your gut, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, there there is a sense of you're one step closer to figuring things out. You feel like you have a purpose. You have a purpose. For sure, for yeah. sure. Because then especially after all of that laboring that feels and making records is sort of lonely a lot of times too. Oh, yeah. And especially like I imagine because you write, you know, by yourself and it's like you said like everyone waits on you for the new record or whatever and right. like I write by myself that's really lonely work yeah. and that's that feeling of just like what am I you go through those like what am I doing 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 and then when it clicks it's like this yes, yes. is what I am doing yes. this is what the fuck <laughs> yeah. I am doing I'm doing it yes yeah totally man and there's yeah and there's that there's that feeling of, of just like total satisfaction and it's a whole different kind of satisfaction than what I felt last night yeah, absolutely. Because that's fleeting. Yeah. What's so funny is like we had that show last night was great for us. It was fantastic. A fantastic night for all involved. And then today, like someone posted on Twitter, like something about just like hating my set. And it's just like, and I just like, Ugh, yeah. Ugh. And what's amazing is that like I played that show and the crowd was packed and yeah. everybody cheered. Yeah. But I watched this one guy, some fucking shit bird in Seattle, supposed one thing. Nah, that wasn't even that drunk okay. dude. It was someone else, but just one guy. That dude was a fan actually. That okay. yeah, which is funny. He came in after like. 
dudes, that's the most amazing thing. Dudes talking shit during your set that come up and ask for an autograph. Right, afterwards. right. Mind blowing. I heard you wrote, uh, don't <laughs> never, never talk, talk to me again. ever again. Yeah. On his record. The best is when Oscar, like, snapped and he just goes, he just, Oscar never really talks on stage, just snapped and was like, you know what you are? You're a punisher. You are punishing all of us. Everybody point at him and call him a punisher. Say, punisher. And everyone in the crowd pointed yes, at this dude and just went, awesome. punisher. And he was, it was so funny. Oscar was, ah. who's my guitarist. Oscar was terrified that I was going to be mad at him for yeah. it because he like never like busts out. And I was like, I can't, I'm so yeah. proud of you, man. I'm so proud of you. But yeah, like this dude posted on Twitter and like I totally evaporates the high that I had yeah. from like this killer show we yeah. had the night before just because of one fucking dude who just like whatever man like not everybody's gonna like my music I don't make music for everybody right. like that's fine and but like, people always wanna be there's always a fucking asshole that makes you want to drag you down you know or like the like you know most people are like oh it was so great thanks for coming up one guy of course comes up and he's like you know, uh, you played a lot of stuff off of Alopecia tonight. I was like, yeah, we like to, you know, keep it well-rounded. He was like, he was like, that's cool, because, uh, you know, I'm trying to listen to the new record, but I don't really like it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> that sense of entitlement is so... I'm like, why you got to say that? Yeah, like, man. You think, you think, like, I'm not fragile? Like, yeah. You think, like, because I can get on stage and sing in front of people that I don't have feelings? Like... Well, and it's not even like a... And, like, I... The I idea. put five years into the record. You know what I'm saying? Like, totally. I put five years of my life into that record and, like, blood, sweat, and tears, all of it. And the guy was like, ah, I'm not really feeling it. Yeah. I don't know. And that one comment will just, like, fucking right. wormhole in right. you. Like, just terrible. Say Burly. That, just keep listening to it or throw it out. Yeah, like, man. <laughs> well, and it's like that thing, too, that, like, it's just like, and it's not like a you shouldn't have an opinion I want you to have an opinion but you don't need to tell me not right, right then and there not right like, then and there not on the like, internet yeah, not, like, not anywhere like, while really. I'm like sweating after the show yeah. like that's terrible yeah. like dudes yeah. will do that shit all the time and like, that's just the most yeah I, I, tell your roommate you know or whatever totally like, totally like, I just, like, and that's just some weird like I get all just like southern like don't you have manners like did yeah. your fucking mom tell you any raise you right that's like, the thing just, is they, they think because you're up on stage singing to them and you're you know, you're not you're not a real person. You're not a real yeah. You know you you know yeah. It's fucking. It sucks sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> it sucks yeah. and it fucking hurts and it sucks and that's when like I'm gonna go smoke pot. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna drink <laughs> yeah. a fucking handle of whiskey. Yeah, and I'm gonna fucking chase skirts and drink whiskey. Like yeah. this is it. Like as much as I I love. I mean, both of us obviously tour asses off, so we have to enjoy it to some extent. And like I love touring I love playing shows like I love like we talked about before like I love entertaining people yeah. I'm a sucker I'm a ham man yeah. I love oh, you're a ham and I'm you're a hella ham. good at it and yeah. I love it and I'm yeah. unapologetic about it like I yeah. love being entertaining and I love being I like being liked you know um, but the thing that's so weird about that is it's not healthy um, you know ultimately because that like you said like that is fleeting yeah I, yeah and I you know I have that ham thing too but there's there is a draw towards that you know I, and I I I have a reluctance about it. I don't have an unapologetic thing. Like, I have this, like, feeling that it's, like, for feeding my ego or something that, like, you know, I was a shy kid as well, man. Totally. And, and you know, it, it's actually an introverted thing, in a way, being on stage. Yeah. You're not actually having a conversation with people. You're having a conversation with yourself, to with people, in a way. Man. But it's more than that, you know, when you find yourself kind of you know, dancing around or trying yeah. to be funny between songs or trying, you know, then like, you're like, okay, I'm hamming it up. 
why am I doing this? And, you know, my friend Austin, after the last show that we played with him, he was in Y for a while. Mm -hmm. After the last show we played with him in Tel Aviv, he was like, like Yoni, you know you're 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 a really good entertainer or something like that. Yeah. I was like, fuck you, man! <laughs> like, that's not, not a fucking I'm entertainer. entertainer. I'm an artist, I'm a goddamn artist. <laughs> but but uh, you know, I had to think about that for a minute. And I said that he and I was like, I'm not an entertainer. He was like, uh, you know, yeah, you say, are. Say what you will, but you, but you are. And and, uh, and with his little sly smile. And I realized that he's right. I am. And, you know, yeah, at some point you have to accept that and be okay with it, you know. Yeah, and I, and I, and it's also like, and like, I am a ham. I do enjoy yeah. it. My relationship with it is different too. Like, I wasn't the Beatles. I wasn't forced into this fucking touring factory, you know, to promote a record. Like, I did it because I also, I love playing live. I mean, yeah. I was playing live before I made records. I've always loved playing live. Yeah. And I tour because I love playing live. If I'm home for two months, sometimes I get fucking shaky and I just yeah. like, someone clap for me. Like, you right, know, like right. that sort of weird right. thing. And, I, you know, it's But you not, don't want to rely on that. That's the thing. It's totally, like, totally. And I'm trying to like, you know, wean myself off of the dependency, yeah. the emotional and mental dependency yeah. of that and start to enjoy it for its own thing and not rely on it as a drug. And I just want to make sure that it's not, I'm thinking about records because the grass is greener, you know, like I don't want to be thinking about records because I'm on tour and then be home making records thinking about tour. Right, like, I right. gotta like figure that out. Yeah, I think they're, they're, they're uh, you know, I'm just, just starting to figure out how to do something from the road and it's not easy at all. Oh, totally. Normally I just get into this like, not doing anything except playing the show mm-hmm. and wasting time, yeah. you know, which when you tour as much as both of us do, then it's like you don't have anything to show for your life, you know, mm-hmm. whatsoever. Yeah. And, it's like, and like you have to sort of go into reserve battery mode yeah. just, just so that when you get on stage, you can be at 10, you yeah. know, and so like all day you're at two. So when right. you get on stage, you can be at 10. Yep. Um, and especially like once you like, you know, if you're touring in the winter and you get unhealthy or like you get, you get that sort of stuff, like it's just like, it's hard. It's hard to be productive on the road because yeah. you sort of have to kind of be a bit of a slug sometimes so that you can be, you know, fucking Mick Jagger on stage. Right. You know? Yeah. Do you find yourself ever fantasizing about having a normal life, like a non-musician life? Do you ever have those days where you're just like, why can't, or not fantasizing, but maybe like blaming yourself, like, why can't I just get a regular job? I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely have fantasies of having a, you know, range life as, as the pavement song goes. Yeah, yeah. Being able to, to have a relationship with a woman, mm-hmm. have a kid at some point. Yeah. And, yeah, raise the kid. You know yeah, what I mean? totally. Yeah, like yeah. have a kid and raise the kid. Yeah, 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 totally. Yes, I have those fantasies, definitely. Yeah, it's, I get, I'll get weird every once in a while and literally like get like mad at myself. Like, why can't you just get a job? Why can't you just get a regular job and be totally content with that? Why? Why? Like, get like angry and like it subsides, it passes, or whatever you know. And like ultimately, you realize like that's the dumbest. You can't because you can't. You're right. incapable of right. doing that. I, I, yeah. For me, there's not even a question about. I mean, for me, when I say, if I was to say that, it would be like, why couldn't I produce other people's records or, you know what I mean? Like things that are within the realms of my understanding mm-hmm. to get a job as a, I don't know, an airplane pilot or, 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 a, <laughs> a, businessman. or a businessman or a machine. <laughs> None of that stuff. I'm not qualified for anything in that. Well, regard. yeah, that's the other thing that's really funny is that like, I realized like I'm no longer qualified for anything anymore. Yeah. I'm no longer you like... You could figure out lights if, if you could learn that. I could learn that, systems. but I would be like starting over. Right. You know, I would basically have to start over right. and learn everything new. But like, I'm not really like... Any resume I had at anything is now gone. Yeah. And I'm no yeah. longer qualified for any job other right. than rapper. And that's sort of like a... 
really like exciting and terrifying thing too where it's just like wow here I am working without a net now. they don't give like, us health insurance there's no yep there's no plan B man no. this is it this is all it that's something that makes me proud and terrified all yeah. at the same time you know that I have gotten to that point is a good thing and a terrifying thing absolutely well I think on that note I think we should head back it's 845 oh shit yeah what time you go on this this has been Andy Bothwell, astronautist. That's 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 a long interview. That's good. It's healthy. Good. Totally. It's healthy. All right, signing off. podcasts um thanks for listening if you are listening well you are if you're here now you're listening um you know if you like it send some money to me and i'll buy some better equipment and make it sound better for you i'll make it juicy for you (laughs) that sounds sick uh yeah thank you for listening uh my manager is brennett snake charmerick Dot com if you if you uh, are uh, uh, an artist of some kind or just a really neat person who's more famous than me and more interesting than me I'd love to talk to you and ask you about you email Brent this episode was edited by myself and the homeboy mr. Ben Sloan all right yeah peace y'all <laughs> Buddy. <laughs>